Take this kiss upon the brow, and in parting from you now, thus much let me avow. You are not wrong, who deem that my days have been a dream, yet if hope has flown away, in a night or in a day, in a vision or in none, is it therefore the less gone? All that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. I stand amid the roar of a surf-tormented shore, and I hold within my hand grains of the golden sand. How few, yet how they creep, through my fingers to the deep, while I weep, while I weep. O oh God, can I not grasp them with a tighter clasp? O oh God, can I not save one from the pitiless wave? Is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream? If you know that poem, you know what movie we're talking about today. Hey, babe. Yeah, babe. Remember that time we watched The Fog? You mean the 1980 John Carpenter classic? That's right. We're continuing on this party train of Topher's birthday month. John Carpenter month. party, John Carpenter party, yeah. party with John Carpenter. I wanna. Exactly. So that poem was A Dream Within a Dream, written by none other than Edgar Allan Poe. Chalk. Um, I'm sure you've heard of him. I don't know. Maybe yeah, not. You know, sort of an indie poet, really. Yeah, yeah. you know. I'm Nicole. I'm Topher. And we're the Horror Babes. And we're very excited to be here. <laughs> yes, correct. I don't have a headache, and my coffee <laughs> did work. Oh, goodness. Uh, find the lie. Find the lie. <laughs> so we're going to be doing the normal format, which means... Topher's going to take us through who made this thing, shout out the cast and the crew, etc. And then I will take us through the plot of the film, and then we will go into a deeper analysis of the film in part three. So without further ado, Topher, who made this thing? Other than John Carpenter. Don't fucking say that again. So John Carpenter made it. I know he made it. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) I tried to catch it. I tried to catch it, folks. The the joke continues. I love it. It's one of my favorite things to do. I will never never tire of this bit. The joke is on me. I'm I'm a clown. I'm a fucking clown. (laughs) But doctor, I am Pagliacci. Yeah, so we have the direction from none other than the amazing and my best friend in the future, John Carpenter. (laughs) The only one that matters that I know of. It can't give any other important ones. Don't give a shit. (laughs) They're all titled, all the files are titled JC month and then the number one, like the number of when we recorded it. Jesus Christ. Who? John Carpenter died on the cross for your sins. (laughs) (laughs) Came back three days later and made Halloween. Oh, God. I should sleep more and drink less. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what? where would your sparkle come from? <laughs> Do I have a sparkle? I think that's just sweat. <laughs> <laughs> you glisten, honey. Uh, yeah, let's, let's go with that. The writing was from Deborah Hill, once again. Whoop, whoop. And mm-hmm. John Carpenter. Whoop, whoop. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. I, I'm, I'm in hell. No. I am in hell and you're Satan. No, this is purgatory. Welcome, bitch. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh. Okay, now that we're back from our laughing fit about Jarn Carpenter. <laughs> Stouffer can't talk. 
It's so stupid. So, who else made this other than Jarn Carpenter? And and Hebradil. Hebradil and Jarn Carpenter. Okay. Oh, oh I've had a God. stroke. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So, I guess in that convention, it'd be Dira Hebel. Dira Hebel. Anyway, so proof that John Carpenter's probably a cool guy. <laughs> yes. I don't. Do I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, oh my god, oh my god Uh, So proof that he's probably a pretty chill dude And that he is, his partners are probably pretty chill people He and Hill had broken up and he was now married to the star of this film, Adrian Barbeau I didn't know they were married Yeah And Adrian Barbeau um, was a big Broadway actor too Yeah, so she started off as a go-go dancer for the mob, fun fact Sick Love She's that. such a badass. I love Adrienne Barbeau so much. She's great in this film, too. She really Side is. Yeah. yeah. Hot and great. Yes. And I told you, she plays the voice of the compu- the chess computer that Kurt Russell kills in The Thing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and she was also in Escape from New York. She's done a bunch of other stuff uh, since then, and I'll get into some of those in a minute. But yeah, I mean, it's like, apparently they, ha- they all had a good working relationship together, but there was never like, it, as far as anyone has said, there's never been any like reports of them being like shitty to each other. Well, that's good. I mean, that that's, you know, it, it doesn't have to be all dramatic. Yeah, sometimes you just, something doesn't work out with somebody, and it works out with somebody else, and you're fine. Well, when it's, when it's you know, amicable, it's just like, you know. Yeah, just shouting it out. I think it's cool. No, that is cool. Yeah. So, Adrian Barbeau, yes. So, she started off as a go-go dancer with a mob, did a bunch of uh, nude shows on, like, an off-Broadway shows, because it was the 70s, everybody was naked in theater. We should oh, bring yeah. that back. Well, the revival of hair. Everyone was that's true. Butt-ass naked. But that was a couple yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she originated the role of Rizzo in Greece. That's right. She was the very first Rizzo. Yeah. But yeah, recently, in the last few years, uh, when there was the Pippin revival, she was the grandmother nice. in Pippin. She also, and this is a fact that I hid from you on purpose. I'm ready. What's your favorite early 90s cartoon show? Favorite early 90s cartoon show? Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a lot of them. You have a t-shirt of this one. Oh, Batman? Mm-hmm. Batman the Animated Series? Yep. The Art Deco Masterpiece. Yeah. Guess who voiced Catwoman? Oh, you're kidding me. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's she like, was the voice of Catwoman they all, that we all grew up with, you know? That's that's pretty cool. I mean, again, she has a really good voice, and obviously John Carpenter noticed that because he cast her as a radio yeah. um, host. Yeah, she's the DJ. DJ, yeah. yeah. Um, and then was the voice in the thing. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, she she has a great voice. It makes sense. Yeah, guys, if if you have not seen my seen my really cool Batman shirt that I've had since I was like three, it has like a lineup of the good guys on the front, and then on the back it has a lineup of the bad guys. Cha, it's, it's cute, really cool. It would probably sell at Urban Outfitters for like fifty dollars, but it's mine. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> I know you guys are really jealous. Yeah, so Adrian uh, Barbeau is playing Stevie Wayne, our radio DJ, lighthouse owner, single mother. Sick name, too. Stevie yeah. Wayne. Give right. me give me two, like, unisex names. Right. Stevie Wayne. Here for it. Yeah. Oh, Stevie Wayne, Bruce Wayne, Batman, Catwoman. Oh, my God. It's all together. It's all tied. Oh, my God. Which, are we abolishing, like, unisex names? Like, is that even a thing anymore? Mm. I don't think it should be. I think we should just name people whatever we want. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck it. I don't think names should be tied to a gender anymore. Here for it. Yeah. I like this platform. Perfect. 
It's settled then. <laughs> so now at ten and a half minutes in, I'm going to get to the second actor in this movie. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, we have Jamie Lee Curtis returning from Halloween as Elizabeth Solly, our Pasadena original, like, rich girl travel hitchhiking her way up the coast to Vancouver, mm-hmm. doing five drawings a day, just being like, I'm a cool chick. She's so cool. Her mother is also in this film. Janet Leigh yep. from Psycho. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, she played. Uh, she plays Kathy Williams in this. The like apparent Nancy Reagan mockery. She gives me big Amy Sedaris energy in this role. Yes, it's hilarious. I just kept thinking she was gonna walk into a house and like kick off her shoes like she does um, in <laughs> Kimmy thing. Schmidt. It's the funniest part of that entire show. I, I need to look after we watched this the other night I was too tired to but I was thinking the whole time like I'm about to look up that scene I'm about to watch it ten <laughs> times on YouTube where she just like kicks up. Shoes! Like, like <laughs> It's it's so funny. It's God. so ridiculous, and it, I I die laughing at it. I also definitely need Amy Sedaris to play Nancy Reagan. I don't. I didn't realize I needed that until just now, but I definitely need that. Yeah, why not? Gleefully killing millions of uh, uh, queer Americans. Anyway, John Houseman oh, as Mister Mason. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Atkins, lifelong like a longtime friend of John Carpenter's. Apparently, they bonded over their uh, mutual love of the original The Thing from Outer Space. Cute. I think it's adorable. Um, but he plays Nick Castle. And also, another uh, Halloween alum in here, Nancy Loomis as Sandy Fatal. Mm. Playing, uh, that was Annie from Halloween mm. playing uh, Janet Lee's assistant. Perfect. Uh, and then we have Hal Holbrook as Father Malone, the drunk priest. Father Malone inside of Father Malone. <laughs> I hate myself. But I can't not think about it. Father Malone. God. I've been set up. And then two of our production designers and editors as the ghosts. Uh, Tommy Lee Wallace as one of the, the ghosts and Rob Botton as Blake, the lead ghost. John Carpenter loves to just use anybody who's around. Like he doesn't, oh, yeah. it, it kind of makes me laugh where I've, I've been in similar situations, like with stage shows where mm-hmm. like the stage manager has ended up in the show just because the director was like, uh, you. Yeah. You. Like, yeah. you're a body. So for some reason... I've cast things before. I'm just like, I don't know. Fuck it. I need somebody else in here. Come on. Let's go. Let's for go. Some reason, for some reason, I just feel like he's like walking around the set and he's like, oh, the fog's not enough. I need like people, like physical right. bodies yeah. like to kill someone. So he's just like, ah, you and you. Tommy, you busy? Yeah. Come on. Come on. Rob, you too. Come on. You literally just need to walk really slow. Come on. <laughs> um, it just cracks me up. It's just like some a scenario that I play in my head. Yeah, it's just, it's just a very like uh, it's a very indie thing to do too. Like this this movie was made for one point one million. I want to mm-hmm. say I'm skipping ahead to what I'd usually do at the end of this, but yeah, it was made for one point one million. Mm-hmm. Um, super low budget for the time, you know. Mm-hmm. Like now, that's also super low budget, but like this is low budget film for sure. Yeah. And so, like, I think it's one of those things of like, um, do I hire more people or do I just pay somebody else a little bit more? <laughs> True. Speaking of him being a nerd, <laughs> so there are a few characters in here who are named after other friends of his. Oh, God. So Tom Atkins plays Nick Castle. If you remember our Halloween episode, Nick Castle played Michael Myers. Oh, my God. It's like a weird domino <laughs> thing. Charles Cyphers <laughs> plays Dan O'Bannon, the writer of Alien, and Dark, who had worked with a Carpenter on Dark Star. <laughs> He's such a nerd. I love him though. It was his birthday. 
Yeah, your your favorite nerd had a birthday yeah. on January 16th. He's amazing. Yeah. And then there's another character named after somebody who was already playing another character in the movie. So Tommy Wallace is played by George Buck Flower and, and Tommy Wallace plays a ghost. Oh my God. He also makes a bunch of references to not only Edgar Allan Poe, which this clearly, as we said up top, is in, this literally is the priest by, yeah. looks like Edgar Allan Poe, and yep. then it starts off with a quote from the poem "A, a Dream Within a Dream." And then yeah. also, there's a bunch of Lovecraft references, like he talks about Arkham Point. Mm-hmm. Um, Arkham, you would probably know from Batman, but is itself a, that Batman reference is a reference to H.P. Lovecraft, yeah, um, and his Arkham series. Uh, or like our kind of thing that keeps popping up in there. Um, yeah, so he's he's a fucking nerd. Uh, he and Deborah Hill also had little cameo. Yes, bits in here. Uh, John Carpenter plays Bennett, the pilot of a helicopter, mm-hmm. and Deborah Hill is an uncredited extra in the background of one of the scenes. I think she's at the uh, the candle lighting. That's what I'm saying. She just I think she's like, a lady that we actually like watch, like having trouble light the candle. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was her. Once again, because this is John Carpenter joint, he did the music. We had Dean Cundy back for cinematography, editing from Charles Bornstein and Tommy Lee Wallace, production design by Tommy Lee Wallace, and special effects uh, sort of headed up by Rob Botton. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, he they, like this is sort of his time when he's got a bunch of he's got like a team. Yeah, this is like his mm-hmm. his like core crew. You yeah. know, like it's like the the. The Coens do this too. You know, they'll work with the same people for like a series of films and mm-hmm. then move on to new people. Like every director has their favorite cinematographer. They have their favorite like effects folks. Yeah. So there's a lot of that going on here, especially when you are working in smaller budgets and like you just you need to know that people can get things done. Totally. So as opposed to moving on to new people, you just, you know. Go with who you know. Yup. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. There's some really cool shit in this movie. We'll get into some more of it later. Um, but... I mentioned that it was low budget several thousand times, but even though it was a low budget movie, he really, really did not want it to look like one. So he shot it in anamorphic 235-1 format. Hmm. Um, that's like your so 235-1 is the uh, is the aspect ratio, right? Yeah. People, I think, know more about that now, especially since Disney Plus came up mm-hmm. and fucked with the Simpsons right. aspect ratio um, and a lot of other things that they moved onto their platform. They're just like, oh, everything's standardized to this one format now even if it wasn't originally shot in that Mm -hmm. which is foolish but anyway um so anamorphic format is like basically you want to take it's how you shoot widescreen on 35 millimeter yeah anamorphic is like like it's it's uh it's changing shape Mm -hmm. is basically what anamorphic means right yeah like we all watch the or we all read those anamorph books and with an i which is a play on the word anamorphic yep Yes. So mm-hmm. I remember um, those books because they had they the holographic color covers, the mm-hmm. holographic covers to what whatever uh, character like changed into. Yeah, those were awesome. And I read all of them. And they were very good. I read quite a few. <laughs> and that's why we're gay now. <laughs> yeah, guys, that's what turned us gay. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, playing with different <laughs> formats and stuff like that helps you achieve things. And shooting in this made it not look cheap. Was mm-hmm. the point? He's like, I'm. I don't care. I'm. This is more. It's a more expensive way to shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's like, nope, definitely not going to 
uh, let it look like shit. <laughs> well, it's like, I feel like sometimes if you just splurge on one thing, it brings the quality up enough to where you're like, it's worth it. Yeah, you exactly. Can, you can scrounge other places and it'll be mm-hmm. fine. But if you, if you have like a good foundation, it's kind of like, it's kind of like what I keep talking about with, with apartments. If you have a really good coat of paint, a really good color paint for the sunlight that you're getting, mm-hmm. then whatever you put in there is going to, is going to look nice. You know, like right. it's, it's having a good foundation. So I, I think. I, I totally, totally understand where he probably was like, this is very important to me and everything else we can kind of figure out. Exactly. Because if you have that off-white, that that cheap-ass paint that all the New York apartments Ugh. are painted in, looks like pee, um, <laughs> then whatever you put in there, it's going to look weird and clash. Like, you can try your damnedest. You can have really cute pieces, but if you have that weird off-white color, to me, to me, it does not look good. I would agree with that. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say it's you know not workable, but I'm like just paint it white. Just All paint right. it. Paint it white. <laughs> All right. Anyway, <laughs> let's move on from talking about painting apartments. Okay. <laughs> I won't the argue. Only with thing that. you ever talk about. I won't argue with that. It's fine. Um, yeah. So this is kind of based on a British film, uh, the Trollenberg Terror, uh, that had monsters hiding in clouds. Um, he also was inspired by a visit to Stonehenge with Deborah Hill. They both were like, oh, we could do something with this. Mm-hmm. It was like it was super creepy and foggy when they went to go see Stonehenge together and started getting the idea for it. Um, he also said that there's the story of a deliberate wrecking of a ship mm-hmm. and then stealing everything from it was like an actual thing that happened near uh, the area in California that this is based in. Mm-hmm. They actually, there was a movie made about that called The Master Gunfighter, but this is sort of like playing with that idea too. You know how, sure, yeah, how Carpenter does and Hill. They're both just like, oh, thing from real life, gonna make it creepy. Totally. He <laughs> hated this movie when he saw the rough cut and went back and redid like so much. Wow. He did a bunch of pickup shots. So that ghost story in the beginning mm-hmm. with Mr. Macon uh, was not there until the very end. He pulled Houseman back in. To come do that. Wow. Because uh, he was like, I, I hate this movie. He's like, it just doesn't work. Um, so they rewrote a bunch of stuff, reshot other things, um, reordered the, some of the scenes, made it gorier, made it like clearer in the story. He and Hill were both just like, fuck, we, we fucked up. <laughs> it happens. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then he actually completely redid the entire score. Wow. After he finished the new version, he's like, nope, the old score I had doesn't work anymore. So I'm going to rewrite the entire score. Oh, my God. That's (laughs) a lot of work. If you want to talk about Carpenter (laughs) being Carpenter, it's I hate this and I'm going to redo the whole thing from scratch. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's a lot of work. Yeah. So about a third of the finished film is is all new footage. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Again, it was just like he was just like, I fucking hate this and I'm going to fix it. It's also funny uh, just to throw in how much everybody who loves who works with him, loves working with him. Jamie Lee Curtis said, because she was asked about the, like, oh, yeah, you're being in another John Carpenter film. What, uh, are you going to be, like, his little darling or something like that? Mm-hmm. I don't that, I don't know what the actual question was. It's sort of what I imagine it, though. You know, it's 1980. I don't imagine anybody's being cool. Yeah, it, that was kind of a trend then. I mean, it hasn't, it hasn't stopped. Like, David Lynch has, like, ten girls that he yeah. casts over and over again. And Kyle MacLachlan. Oh, they're like, they're so tight. They're tight. Yeah, they're just like, buddies. They, they love each other. <laughs> but she, um, so when she was talking about like being in another Carpenter movie, she's like, uh, this is what I love about John. He keeps just like letting me explore different aspects of myself and says, I'm spoiled rotten now. My next director is going to be almost a letdown. <laughs> 
Like that's high fucking praise. That is praise. really high praise. That is really high praise. So yeah, like it's it's dope that like this is a completely different character than Laurie Strode, right? Definitely, yeah. That she's like, I mean, Laurie Strode. We talked a lot of in that episode about her being uh, virginal and things like that. And the f- second scene with Jamie Lee Curtis in this is her in bed with a man she just met. Yeah, this one she's she's way more confident. Um, this character and she's yeah she's just way more sure of herself and she's just mm-hmm. kind of. A free spirit hitchhiking. Yeah, you know? just doing her thing, just, just being a rich thing. girl, making her way up the coast. Doing, doing whatever. Yeah, and I love that he, I love that Janet Lee's in here too. Her yeah. mom, her yeah. literal mom. Both have huge um, horror legacies. Both of them. Yes. Like Massive, that, massive. Yeah. So them together in this film was actually pretty cool. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun to have them together. I don't um, think they ever had a scene together though, right? They are in the ends. In the end, in the yeah. end, they're but they're not really. Oh, that's right, because they all end up at the church. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this was the first of two times they acted in a horror film to the, together, because uh, they were both in Halloween H two O twenty years later. H two O. Yeah, I love it. In 1998. yeah. So they were both in that together. So they got to do they got to act together twice in two different horror films, but one by Carpenter, one inspired by Carpenter. That's nice. Yeah, uh, it's got an eighty nine minute runtime. Super tight, nice, tight editing. Mm-hmm. It was a part of the two-picture deal with Avco Embassy Pictures yeah, <clears throat> for distribution because it was uh, this and then Escape from New York that they did. Yes. Uh, Deborah Hill was the produ- was like the producer. It was mm-hmm. her production company who made this. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it made 21.3 at the box office. So that's a pretty solid return on a pretty short budget. Yeah. Um, it When it came out, like every other movie with Carpenter, people fucking hated it. <laughs> yeah, I've seen I've seen mixed reviews on it in general. Um, and if you if if you guys haven't watched it and you're listening to this episode, it is free on um, Amazon Prime, so it's included in your subscription if you have yeah. Amazon Prime. Obviously, it was remade in 2005. I actually saw the remake before I saw this. This is my first time seeing The Fog, mm. which is weird because it's one of those that I really should have seen before, just had never gotten around to. It's a lesser known one of his, I mm-hmm. think. And you know, just the age I was, I was 15 when the when the remake came out, and fuck, it was bad. That's what I heard. That one got way worse reviews than I this one. I think it's one. like at four percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which I don't like oh citing them that much. But that's low. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen something that low. But again, I don't really reference Rotten Tomatoes too much. Yeah, I tend to go to Metacritic. They're a better weighted average system yeah. and not a, a brute force system. But mm-hmm. I could talk about systems all day. But that's not what this podcast is about. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So this came out um, twenty. No, sorry, Jesus. This came out forty-one years ago. They just celebrated its 41st anniversary on February wow. 1st. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, that that wraps us up for everything. It was a little bit of a little bit of a journey there. <laughs> it always is. <laughs> but yeah, if you want to take us away on plot, we'll do. Thanks. So, <laughs> thanks. You're you're so welcome. Uh, so we are in the fictional town of Antonio Bay in Northern California. Um, they're about to celebrate their 100th anniversary, which I didn't... Do towns do that? They used to. Okay. I guess once it gets over, like, 100 or 200, like, I yeah, don't know. No, like, I, I feel was, like at I some point... I was a kid during, like, the bicentennial ce- celebration for Nashville. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Yeah, and for the, the fucking country. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess so. 
So <clears throat> I have a shirt of that somewhere. <laughs> so some weird shit starts happening. What? At midnight, the witching hour. Ooh. Apparently the witching hour is between midnight and one. No, it's three o'clock. Well, in this movie, it's midnight. Oh, yeah, one. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like, well, that's what I was going to bring up. I always, in, in like, you know, exorcist films, they say it's three o'clock mm-hmm. is the witching hour. But in this one, we are in a fictional town, so we can go by their rules. Um, <laughs> it, it, they don't, I don't think this movie follows logic at all. So Internal logic. Yeah, but it's it's very dream logic. Yes. So their witching hour is starts at midnight. It's midnight to one. Yeah. Um, we are introduced to the priest, Father Malone. I'm going to try to refrain from doing a Vine reference. Well, it just keeps making me think of Molly Malone. Who's Molly Malone? Uh, it's a classic, like, um, sort of Irish ballad, Sweet Molly Malone. Oh, I don't know that yeah, one. I used to play it a lot. Gotcha. It's very pretty. Father Malone finds a diary that's his grandfather's. Uh, he found it in the church. He is a priest. Um, yeah, he's drunk and trying to cheat his uh, his helper around the... Yes, yes, which, yeah, um, <laughs> is funny. He's like, he's like, hmm, time... Time is money, so why don't you come in a little bit later? And so, like a piece, a piece of the masonry falls from the wall, and this is where the diary is. Right. And he starts reading it and finds out that in 1880, the six founders of this town, Antonio Bay, right, including his his grandfather, the one that is journalist, they deliberately sank. A ship that was named, and this is important for later, the Elizabeth Dane. Why did they deliberately sink this ship? Because there was a wealthy, leprosy-afflicted owner whose name was Blake. He wouldn't establish a leper colony nearby. Yeah, so he had talked to Father Malone and said, like, oh, hey, I'm going to come with my me and my lepers. Yes. And... We're going to establish a leper colony here to the north of Antonio Bay. Because. Of the, of the monastery or Because whatever we've is. been shunned. Yes. Because we have leprosy. But so, he's rich, so he's like, I'm going to do it. Yeah. So, in the meantime, their three fishermen are out at sea in a, in a weird glowing fog. So, we get the, the title character. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. Um, so early. Yeah. So, they get kind of enveloped by this glowing weird fog and we also see the elizabeth dane which has blake and his crew who end up killing the fishermen they're they're not looking so great we can they're like a zombie they're like zombies yeah super gross (laughs) they're yeah that rotting flesh and shit so then we've got we're in kind of like the the very present day. We've got Nick Castle. He's driving home down, you know, a dark road or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then he, this is when he picks up Elizabeth Solly. Jamie Solly, Lee Curtis. Who is Jamie Lee Curtis. And they're heading towards town. Um, the windows just like shatter. It's very surprising. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it scared me. And then we meet local radio DJ Stevie Wayne, played by Adrian Barbeau, um, who we talked about earlier. Stevie Wayne here with you at. Uh... Oh yeah, and all the guys are like <laughs> always thirsting after her. There, there's like, yeah, you can yeah. do that to me. You can talk to me. And I'm, the I'm fishermen just like, are all drunk and horny for her voice. Oh the her meteorologist dude who calls in is to give like her the in weather. love with her. Yeah. Um, which 
I don't blame any of them, but also like stop being weird. Yeah. Maybe um, stop calling her sweetheart every three seconds. Gross. So so she she's given a piece of driftwood. Her son Andy found it on the beach. Yeah, he just loves like going out and like yeah. scrapping on the looking uh, for trash. Yeah. Um which, because he, th- well, he thinks he sees a gold coin and yeah. then it turns into this piece of driftwood, yeah. And all you can see on it is Dane. The word Dane inscribed onto this piece of driftwood. Yeah. And Stevie takes it with her um, to... So this is a pretty cool setup. She broadcasts the radio show from like a, a lighthouse. Yeah. Um, which that is, she also operates. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty <laughs> sick. So um, she takes it with her to her to work. Um, she has it next to the tape player. And then the wood just like start seeping water yeah, like randomly like flowing almost so her her tape player that she had right next to it starts to short circuit and goes a little little nuts uh, and then with with the tape recorder or the t- yeah yeah with the tape player uh short circuiting there's like a weird man's voice that comes from the tape player who is talking about revenge and all this dramatic stuff <laughs> saying six must die and that appears on the wood. It says six must die. Right. And then it just, you know, casually bursts into flames. <laughs> um, yeah. So so Stevie very conveniently just like has a fire extinguisher right there. I was like, she didn't have to like go downstairs or anything or there like go. There are about this. But like it was literally right next to her foot. Uh-huh. Anyway, she extinguishes the Do you fire. Want it far away? <laughs> I don't, but it, I was just like. It's like she, I don't know, whatever. It didn't seem realistic. But anyway, uh, she sees the, after she extinguishes the fire, it's very clear that the wood says Dane, that it reads Dane. And then the tape player just acts normal again, like nothing happened. It Like huh. it didn't just get soaked and set on fire and all that, like it, nothing. It's <laughs> didn't just Didn't have fine. weird demon voice coming out of it. Yeah. It's just fine. Like you were dreaming that and you hallucinated that. So Nick and Elizabeth find a corpse. Sick. Yep. Great first date material. Um, well, yeah, because he's the one who owns the fishing boat. Yes, yes. And so he's like, why the fuck haven't they come back yet? They were supposed to come back last night. Where are they? So it's kind of spooky because it's this guy named Dick Baxter and his eyes have been gouged out. Ew. Gouged? Gouged. Gouged. Um, gouged. And so... <laughs> Um, the other two are just like missing, uh, who is the husband of Kathy Williams, who is overseeing the town's centennial celebrations. Yeah, she's so, like, I don't know if she's like the mayor's assistant or if she's just like the leader of the local like white glove society or something like that. But it's like very yeah. much like small town feels like this is the only power she can have sort of thing. But she's for a sure. bit megalo about it. You something know? to wake up for, something to get out of bed for, something to live for. You know, like everyone needs it. It's one of those things that like, uh, it's hard to describe, but like we see this a lot in, you know, documentaries about smaller town America where you see someone who just like takes their power way too seriously. Yeah. Like um, in Wild Wild Country, you saw this, right? Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. Yeah. So... So he's getting, they're performing an autopsy on um, Dick Baxter. Mm -hmm. So the coroner is talking to Nick and and Elizabeth is just kind of like zoning out in the autopsy room. She's Mm -hmm. just kind of like looking around. Um, But behind her, the corpse just like 
rises from the autopsy table, you know, like everyone's biggest fear. And yeah. and is has like a weapon, like he a, goes hook. a scalpel. Scalpel. Yeah. That's yeah. Um in his hand and almost just completely fucks her up, but then collapses. And Elizabeth is screaming. Nick and the coroner rush into the room and they see that the corpse carved the number three in the floor. So we're playing right. a lot with numbers here. We've got, you know, mm-hmm. six must mm. die. We've got a number three. We've got like a lot of numbers. It's, it's I, I don't like math. Um, <laughs> then, so it's the evening and the town celebrations are beginning. So much fun. Uh, local weatherman Dan calls Stevie. This is our local horny weatherman Dan. Dan is such a simp. He's such a simp for Stevie. <laughs> like he's, he's just like it, she's literally like, dude, what do you want? You're calling me. I have 30 seconds to get back on the air. Like, what the fuck do you want? Hey, I'm yeah. hanging up in 30 seconds. And he's like, well, I just want. Can you come out tonight or something? She's like, I run a radio show. No, and like hangs up. Um, yeah, Dan is a complete simp. So, God, if they had, if she'd had a Twitter. And he would just be in those comments all the time. and Sliding like, in the DMs, too. Oh, and be saying horrible things in the DMs. You know, just like, oh, why don't you love me? I'm not going to use all of the language that he would definitely use. But we all know the language he would definitely use in those DMs. We've seen the screenshots. Okay, so he does end up having something important to tell her. Right. That... Which is actually, it seems pretty normal in this town for there to be, you know, some fog coming in and Stevie has to report it so that yeah, they're whoever's, fishing down. Yeah, whoever's out at sea can, you know, get the fuck back on land or, you know, I don't Stay know, is it, it, what, is it, is it okay to go through fog? Is it not advised? Like, is it, is it one of those things that you just maybe should know about? So here's the thing. I love boats. And being on boats. Me too. I know shit about boats. Yeah, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm. That's what I'm wondering. Is that like is is the fog? If someone tells you that fog is coming in, does that literally mean like nope, get the fuck back? Or is it like you just need to know this so that you can get through it? I've got to imagine it's got to be like. I mean, it, I, it definitely fucks with like your visual scanning and stuff. But like, yeah, I have radar and sonar. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. So I'm wondering if it's more like if you can beat it, beat it. But if you can't, just chill. Yeah. You know, I think that's 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 what I would guess, you know, like Right. So Stevie reports and says that the fog bank is moving towards town. And it's moving against the wind too, which is what's weird. Yes. So as 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 these two are talking, the fog is outside the weather station and Dan hears a knock at the door. He goes to it, answers it, and then is killed by by um Revenants. Revenants, yes. As Stevie <clears throat> listens and is pretty fucking terrified. Yeah, she's freaking out. She's like, holy shit. So, but she, you know, the show must go on. So she's continuing her radio show and the fog is continuing to move inland and is fucking with the power lines, the telephone uh, connection, like everything. Yeah, she's like um, trying to get on the... Yeah, she's trying to get on the phone with uh, the the sheriff who's yeah. at the she like calls the bar where that's right by the the celebration. Yes, and as soon as he gets on the phone, the power line, or the the telephone lines cut. Yeah, so she has to go downstairs and start up the backup generator because her power is completely out. Mm-hmm. And then once she gets her power back from the from the backup generator, she she hops back on the air and is like, she's really worried about her son. 
um, her son Andy, the one that found the driftwood in the in the beginning, he's being babysat by this um, older woman. I don't know. I don't know if they ever established their relationship. It could just be like a neighbor, like I think, a babysitter. Yeah, she's just an older neighbor. I it's think, someone in the neighborhood who takes care of him because his mom works eighteen hours All the a day time. at yes. the lighthouse slash radio station. Yeah, absolutely. She's a working gal. So Stevie is like is 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 begging people on the air like i live here i yeah here's my my, address i'm doxing myself (laughs) yeah please go to my address and like save my son tell him to get out of the house like um the the fog is closing in whatever horny man saves my son will get to be his new daddy (laughs) (laughs) right say that and you've got like men just like running but she's like she's in a way at this moment sacrificing herself because she doesn't know what's going to happen but she knows that the fog is about to Close, close in on the lighthouse. Yeah. And she, because she's up so high, she feels like she has to continue to report, but she doesn't know what's going to happen to her since all this crazy shit has been going on. Right? So she, in, exactly, a, in yeah. a way, she's kind of sacrificing herself without, you know, without knowing what's going to happen. And for um, the good of the town, like she wants everybody else to be safe and she's the only one who can see and report. Yes, exactly. So um, she does this, she's literally in a way saying goodbye to her son on air. Yeah. So Nick and Elizabeth or Beth are the ones who answer the radio call and go to um, Stevie's house. And we see that the babysitter, Miss Cobritz, poor Miss Cobritz, like opens the door and is just standing there with the door open and telling him to like, this you know, go to his kid. room. And he's like, no, I'm not going to. And she, I'm like, girl, close the door. But <laughs> before she can do that, they kill her. And then this is when Nick and Nick arrives and rescues Andy. So he's in the truck now with Beth and Nick. We get that nice tense scene where the the attackers are the fog the fogmen yeah. are like trying to approach and like kill them in the truck and he like she can't get the thing to back out. <laughs> oh man, yeah. It's it's <laughs> they can't a whole see for stressful, shit. Yeah. yeah, stressful moment. <laughs> And then Stevie is on air and can, you know, can still see where the fog is heading. So she advises everyone to go to the church Mm -hmm. because it's not, um, it hasn't gotten there yet. Mm -hmm. So we've got Nick, Elizabeth or Beth, uh, Andy, Kathy, who is the one, um, is she the mayor? No, she's she's the, she's the one, she's like, that's what we're trying to say is like, she's got some sort of power in the town, but it's not clear what. Because we see the mayor. He kind of looks like Barry Boswick or whatever. Oh, that's right. So we've got Nick, Elizabeth, Andy, Kathy, and then the assistant, Sandy. And then, of course, the priest, Father Malone. They're they're in, like, a back room. The He's fog, drunk as shit. Of course. <laughs> and the fog uh, arrives outside. So they find a gold cross that's, like, inside the wall. Yeah, it was right behind where the journal was. Yeah. Um, it's made from the stolen gold, we find mm-hmm. out. So they, they, the, the fog, I like calling them the fog people, honestly. Yeah, the I was fog, just saying fogmen. Yeah, the fog people begin their attack. They're like, hello, <laughs> we're here to attack you. We're here to kill you. <laughs> We've got fish hooks. Oh my God. <laughs> You're going to die. <laughs> Six must die. Uh, so Father Malone grabs that gold cross. He's, he's in the chapel He's like, the power of Christ compels you to bitch. kill me and take this gold back. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of weird. Um, so he's like, yeah. So so basically, he's like, he's like, they've they've come back to take six people, which 
And they count the, the five that have died so far. Yes, yes. So there has to be a sixth because it's it's parallel to the six original people who who led them to their death. So it's some yeah. sort of like revenge. It's some sort of like revenge narrative here. Mm-hmm. Um, there ha- six for six, an eye for an eye, six for six, an eye for an eye. Etc. Yeah. So Malone has the has the gold cross, and he's like, "Take me, take me, and the gold, take it all," and is like, "Spare the others, like they they don't deserve this right. or whatever." Um, and at, back at the lighthouse, Stevie's getting attacked. Mm-hmm. She's trapped on the roof. She's kind of like climbing up. It's it's very it's very scary because you're like, "Girl, you're gonna fall." Um, <laughs> we're and then inside the church. The one of the fog, fog, fog folks, Blake, yeah, the leader, yes, has the gold cross. It starts to glow. Nick pulls Father Malone away from the cross and it disappears in like a flash of light along with Blake and his crew. They're like gone, like we got what we, what yeah. we needed, we're, we're done. And then we flash over to the lighthouse, all of that is gone. Like it's just like the fog is gone, it vanished, mm-hmm. it's done. Said, We got the golden cross, we got five lives, we're done. So Stevie hops down from the roof and is, she's fine, um, except maybe emotionally upset. Um, <laughs> and she did get stabbed. She did get stabbed. Bitch got stabbed, but it's okay. It's okay. She has she has her health, um, <laughs> and she has her son. So Elizabeth, Nick, Andy, Kathy, and Sandy. For some reason, that rolls off the tongue really well. Nice. Yeah. Um, they they head out of the church. The fog reappears inside the church because... Six must die. Six must die. And Father Mill's like, why didn't they take me? Why didn't they do that? And then so he gets decapitated. Um, Pop off with the head. By Blake, the head fog, bro. Big old machete. Yeah. And then the screen cuts to black and roll credits. That's Mm -hmm. it. Done. Done and dusted. Yeah. It's a nice... It's a a fun plot, you know? It's a little convoluted at times, I think think but I, it works out like it's it's not too crazy it's certainly not a perfect movie and it's and it was never going to be a blockbuster i don't think anyone ever wanted it to be and it wasn't i don't i don't smell that like big studio like we're we're gonna try to push this it feels indie and it feels, it feels low budget yeah. and i mean that as a compliment to yeah this no film. yeah absolutely because it, this is a movie that like i don't know i i think it's I respect it and I think it's good, but I don't think it's one that I would like go back to over and over and over again. I'll probably watch it again, but yeah, I, it's definitely gonna be on my list now of things yeah. to continue. Like I'll watch here and there, but I'm not gonna watch it as much as Halloween. I'm not gonna watch it as much as a thing. It was a fairly a lot of fun, easy watch and a palatable plot. Um, you're right; it is convoluted at times, in my opinion. Um, but it's just a little bouncy from yeah. where like the narrative is a little bouncy. Yeah, and it's if you're looking for like a a true like scare you shitless movie, this isn't the one for you. This is kind of like Adventures in Babysitting, like elevated, <laughs> but which is also <laughs> Halloween Adventures in Babysitting, but just like what if there was a killer? Yeah, I mean this is definitely this is a good this is scary. It's good. Yeah, no, um, it's good. It's I don't know. It doesn't freak me out as much as the thing, and it also could no. just be like what it is. You know, like maybe it's yeah. just. There's like there's a way to push this narrative that that scares the shit out of me, and mm-hmm. this isn't quite like the ring would be this, right? Yeah, in terms and of I like think... the revenge narrative and something coming back from the dead to take the life of those who have participated in its demise. 
For sure. That's sort of how I feel about, like, the thing, the ring scares me more than this does, and it's a similar kind of narrative. But this is still very good. I think it has to do a little bit with the villain itself, because if you're not really thinking past, past, um, the outer, the exterior of it, like, fog is not that scary, and neither, neither are, are the, um, men with leprosy. They're kind of gross, but... They're like they're they're zombie they're zombie gross where you like you know that they're not they're just undead sort of thing I don't know zombies don't scare me that much but yeah but when you really think about it the the underlying maybe allegory of this movie is a little bit scarier because yeah you and I had two different reads on this the way that I read it was the fog is a little bit of a, is an allegory for time and death Mm -hmm. and that's why it's tied to edgar Allan poe's poem uh yeah because we're in we're we're very clearly in a fictional universe here Mm -hmm. where he's he's already set it up that way there's there's a little bit of dream logic and then fog has traditionally always um signaled that we're in a supernatural or a dream state or something yeah that it means that things are things are uh foggy yeah you can't things, tell what things it, be foggy <laughs> i didn't want to do that but it happened uh yeah it's about like i, I get you with this like the fog distorts time it distorts vision mm-hmm. it like you have a hard time understanding what's going on well and it creeps in and that's mm-hmm. that's what i think is uh, that's what i personally think is being said here is death is something we all have in common it's going to happen to all of us one way or another and it kind of like it creeps in it's a slow march it's a slow march and it's it's you know it's it's the last thing that happens to you Mm -hmm. and (laughs) and i think it's one of those things where we're playing with we're playing with time here again we 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 keep going back to time in so many different definitions of the word time where we've got a specific time that things happen here which is also also happens in a lot of horror films like again the witching hour is such a common phrase whether Mm -hmm. it means 3 a.m or 12 a.m uh in this one it's 12 a.m but that's a specific time and that's when all of this shit goes down that's when it went down um you know centuries before like decades before and then in present time it happens between 12 and 1 it always happens then and then we're also playing with time in the way that we spend our time like we've got the kind of overworked single mother here who like i was i was saying to you earlier there's this there's this thing with parenthood where you want to you want to you want to work as hard as you can for your kid like you're doing a lot of this for them so that you can provide them with what they need and what they want sometimes you, you totally. know you're, you're trying to make a living and make make a good living for your child right but what happens with that is money is time yeah you know absolutely, and, and, yes. and and it's time spent away from your kid so that i think is what stevie and andy represent is stevie is having to work very hard spend a lot of time in that lighthouse she's basically multitasking like running a radio show but also running the lighthouse you know um and is 
essentially missing a lot of Andy's childhood, but to provide him with a good childhood. So it's this whole issue that I think a lot of parents have where they kind of blink their eye and and their kid is like a teenager or is going to college. And you're like, well, I mean, we can pay for you to go to college now, but I feel like I missed out on a lot. And I think with how Stevie reacts to the fog maybe getting to Andy and, and potentially killing him, it really shows us that moment of like, I need to spend more time with my kid. Like, I'm really worried. I need to find a better balance. Yeah. And then with, um, in the beginning, it's a, it's a joke, but it's also talking about time. Like he, the priest literally says time is money. So come in, you know, an hour or two later, I think he says come in at four and then he's like, actually come in at six or something. Yeah. He doesn't use the phrase time is money, but he, it's implied underneath there. Yeah. 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 He says something to that well, cause, effect. Well, cause the, the guy Bennett, I think is his name mm-hmm. asked to get paid. Yeah, and then and he's, he's like, like mm, come at six. at six. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're playing with time here a lot. And again, the fog is what make, makes time confusing. Yeah, and you're, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of support to your thing too, like just with the um, motifs used throughout the film, or mm-hmm. like, uh, not motifs, but evidence of motifs. So the, Mr. Macon telling the story, he has a pocket watch dangling, dangling in front of the kids. Mm-hmm. Bell's toll. Um, even in the the poem, which by the way was Deborah Hill's idea to throw yeah. it up, up top, that was her thing to put that uh, little title card on there. Yeah. Um, the poem, like we can look at the lines, a dark unfathomed tide of interminable of interminable pride, right? Yeah. In what is it, like oceans, time, tides, totally all of that stuff. Like that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a beach, a fishing town that is like fishing is tied to the tides. Yeah. Which is a timing thing. So it's, I totally get it. Like, I think that's a, I think it's a pretty solid analysis of that um, in terms of allegory. Um, and there's a, I've actually, I'd found a review of this from a couple of years ago mm-hmm. from, um, it was in a Nightmarish Con, it was in Nightmarish Conjurings, that's what yeah. I say, uh, from uh, uh, Gregory Mucci, um, who wrote an article that has a lot of similar ideas to what you're putting out there, too. What I was taking from it, is this whole sins of the father narrative. Yes, that that's also something that I think is going on here too because John Carpenter can do two things. He can. And so can Deborah Hill. They're yeah. both they uh, there doesn't have to be one motif or theme to a movie, you know? Yeah, I think they're they're very good at like interpolating different ideas that you can you can get and like pick up on throughout. Totally. Unless it's Halloween, in which they both said it's not about anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a silly slasher story. Yeah. yeah. So what I was getting into with it was the uh, the whole folklore narrative of mm-hmm. it, um, because that's what it is. Like it is. It's it's a folktale. Yeah. It starts with a folktale, and it te- and it unspools like a folktale. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the way we see the narrative happen is uh, is how we would be watching some sort of traditional American folk tale. Yeah. Happen. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because we say, like, I would not call the Fogmen, <laughs> the Fog Folk, uh, villains. I think they're justified in their revenge, mm-hmm. which is funny because we're rooting against them. Totally, but they are the ones who were who were wronged. Um, yeah. and I think that's why Malone is such an interesting character to me. One, I love drunk priests. I've said that many, many times. Mm-hmm. I miss the '70s and early '80s. When every time you saw a priest on screen, that guy was going to swear, he was going to smoke, and he was going to drink. Well, we've got that in Fleabag now. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. She brought that yes. back for sure with I, with the, that priest who always has gin in his 
um, office. Yeah, yeah. I love Andrew Scott as well. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So good. Yeah. Love him so much. I was recently rewatching uh, uh, and then finishing up Sherlock, and mm-hmm. he plays Moriarty in that. And good God, is he amazing in it. Yeah, he's great in Fleabag, too. I love yes. that series. Likewise. Um, yeah, so it's I, I like this narrative in like, there's something going on here, I think. So Carpenter very much was openly hateful of Reagan of the Reagans. Uh, he lived in California. They were he was uh, Ronald Governor. Blah, blah, blah. Ronald Reagan was the governor of California before he was president. And this movie comes out um, after he's been elected, right? Yeah. Um, or right or right before he's elected. This would have been during his campaign, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's Janet Lee's character, who I said earlier is like a Nancy Reagan type, and I think that's on purpose. I agree. Because you have agree. Malone saying, no, we need to atone. We've done something wrong. Yes. And we, we are the ones who are fucked up. We are living on stolen and murder, achieved by murder land. And she's saying, it's in the past. Yeah. It's whatever. <laughs> Thanks, Rafiki. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um. Anyway, like, it's, it's one of those things of, like, I think he, and he's been open about this, too, that he's very um, pro-Native rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's, I, I love him for this little slipping in and like a critique of American politics, right? Yeah. And how we owe so much to the people who were murdered, the, whose land we live on. Absolutely. And I, that's it, like, it's not subtle. Like, if there's anything Carpenter is not, it's subtle. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that this, this movie then takes on a more interesting meaning where, like you said, we're supposed to be rooting against them because they're killing this town of characters that we're supposed to be endeared to. Yes. Uh, but they they are completely justified in their, in their revenge. And yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with you that he was also trying to say something about that. If, even if the Nancy Reagan type character was not in there, but that makes it very clear yeah. that that was, you know, his, his thought and his intention and, and Deborah Hill, I don't want to, I don't want to leave, leave. No, no, no. They're both very important. They're they're very collaborative. But yeah, I, I think this movie is very fun. I think that it treats, treats every, everyone in this movie pretty well. And I think that it Mm -hmm. says something, I think that it says a lot more than we even give it credit for. Um, yes. After a first watch, which is a traditional indie film, you you kind of you kind of go away from it thinking like, well, it didn't seem like there was much to that movie. But once you do a deep dive and really think about it, what it might be trying to say, then you mm-hmm. probably present more questions than you do answers. And then it's that whole like, oh, now I love this movie. Wheel. Now I need to engage yeah. with it more. I've got to yeah. watch it again to see if I can pick up this this time. Totally. And that's what I. Yeah. So I guess that leads us into sort of our, our big section here, um, talking about Carpenter as a director and mm-hmm. why I, I think, so to me, this is his most Carpentery film. Yes. Which is funny to say, because it's not his most famous. It didn't start a genre. It didn't start a franchise. It didn't, like, become one of the mo- most important cult classics of all time and my favorite horror film of all time. Um, yeah. It's none of those things. But it's, there's something about it where this one just has his... Uh, and I say this with love, stink all over it. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to things like using that anamorphic 235-1 format. Yeah. It's the score. And it's going back and reshooting a fucking third of the movie. Mm-hmm. Going back and rescoring the entire movie. Adding in all these different scenes. Like, it's this desperation that he has to make good work that comes out so clearly in this. Yes. Because um, like I said, he hated the rough cut. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. 
I've made a bad movie. <laughs> Oops. And so he goes back. He's like, okay, well, now it's going to be good. And just does like, he just, I always see him as like this sort of like. Sorcerer. A sorcerer. I was going to say like <laughs> old school DJ, you know, like he's got his two, he's got his turntable. He's got his two things. He's got all of his buttons and his samples and things like that. He's going to work up in between. He's got his, uh, he's got his fader and he's just doing all this stuff. And he's like, okay, I'm going to take something not great and make it into something good. Cause he's just mixing and remixing and fiddling mm-hmm. in a really cool way. Yeah. I think it's why he's so involved with so many parts of the process, not just because he's an indie guy, which that's we've talked about that before on um, during this month. Yeah. Of what it means to be an independent director and like a a lifelong independent director. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it's really amazing to watch him just sort of touch pieces. So it gets into his love of folklore. We see him referencing H.P. Lovecraft. We see him referencing Poe. We see Mm -hmm. him referencing um, Howard Hawks again. Yeah. You know, like. He loves Howard Hawks and he wanted to make something. And this this feels more like a Howard Hawks type 1950s sci-fi horror film yeah. than it does. Like this is a Vincent Price joint, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. it's, it's that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I think that's what if I when when we want to answer the question, what is it to be John Carpenter or what is it to be like a Carpenter style film? Yeah. That's the kind of stuff I'm getting at is being so steeped in the narrative of your genre. Totally. To know, like we talked about this with The Thing and we talked about this with Halloween, Mm -hmm. knowing their place and when they're coming out. Yeah. Like one of the reasons they did a bunch of reshoots is because they realized they were going to be coming out against a bunch of other gorier films. Mm -hmm. So they made the movie gorier. Yeah. They added in way more to it. He and Hill were both just like, okay, nope, uh, we have to compete. And also this is what this is the this is the time. This is what the time is then. This is what we're going to do. For sure. While not copying anybody else, rooting yourself exactly in time. I was having this conversation last night with a friend, a good friend of the pod, Chris Lopez. And he was like, I don't know if Carpenter was a guy who was before his time, in his time, or at, or ahead of his time. Or uh, uh, after his time. You know, we were talking specifically like about the thing and why it tanked his career in a, with studios. Yeah. He somehow exists in all three. That's what I was. That's exactly what I said. Like, yeah. It's almost like depending on the movie, because Halloween obviously was like the sweet spot. Like he was right there. Yes. With the time, everyone responded to it. He was predicting. He was. Yeah. And then you've got and then you've got something like this where I think he he was a little bit. This movie to me is a little bit reminiscent and and I think I I like it a lot because it just makes me think of it makes me think of Vincent Price but it also makes me think of like the very first like horror movies where you've got like the swamp thing like coming out Yeah, those out old of, universal monster pictures, yeah, yeah. It makes me kind of think of that because we've literally got a monster that's called like the fog. And yeah. I think that it, it it makes me think of like Scooby Doo or something. Like you've got yeah. like a a very a very mythical villain and you've got uh, so I don't know. I think I think that this might have been a little bit behind the times but in a good way. Um, where it's like reminiscent of all of those things, like you yeah, said, Poe, Lovecraft, yeah. um, um, Vincent Price, old Universal monster movies, like all of those things, and then a lot of his other movies, I think, were ahead of the time, and that's why it yeah. didn't 
do well at the time. But looking back on it, we're like, oh, shit, that was actually the pretty... thing is the greatest horror film of all time. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually pretty, pretty progressive as far as how you make films. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think somehow he exists in all three, which is I feel like it's a cop out, but I can back it up. So maybe it's yeah, not. no, it's I don't perfect. know. It's when it's <laughs> so here's sort of what I want to say about like what it means to be Carpenter. Um, I think it's in that this essay. I will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't threaten me with a good time. Oh boy. Um, yeah. So he's trap in folks. <laughs> he's someone who always knows what movie he's making. Yes. He doesn't always know it right when he's making it, <laughs> but he always knows what movie he's making by the time the film goes to print. He's like a mad genius to me. I, maybe it's the mustache. I think I'm projecting a lot onto him because he has like a <laughs> sick mustache. It's a dope mustache. And he owns being half bald. He does. He does. He's like, he fuck it. I don't give a shit. Yeah, exactly. Um, he's like, I'm, I'm more concerned about making dope art. Why is anybody talking about hair? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, he's got a little bit of a Howard Hughes thing going on sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But he doesn't. He's not crazy. Like, that's the thing is like, he's very, very aware of what he's making. And sometimes it doesn't work. And then he makes it again. Mm-hmm. You know, he recuts it. He reshoots. He rescores. He does yeah. all these things. And he works with these people who will work through that process with him. Mm-hmm. And no one seems to resent him for it. Right. So when it, yeah, when I'm talking about like aesthetically Carpenter, I'm talking about things that are so rooted in the history of horror and trying yeah. to talk about the present of horror. Mm-hmm. I think and that's talking, a really yeah. good, good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. I think he just he's just a fucking nerd. He's such a student of the genre. Yeah. Right. And so when I compare him to say like Jordan Peele. Yeah. I think that that's why I always think that Peele is such a Carpenter style director because yes. the, we've only seen two horror films from him that he's directed. Yes. I, I've, I've heard more to come and I'm very excited about it. Yeah. I, I cannot wait. But like one of the great things about him is that he is such a nerd and such a student of the genre. He loves the genre. Mm-hmm. And it's this almost like the phrase I want to use for both of them is camp if we took it seriously yeah i was about to bring up jordan peele as well because i he absolutely does exactly what john carpenter was doing in he takes these very very palatable horror narratives but then puts them in the present day Mm -hmm. and yeah takes the history it, it just steeps everything in all of these references and yet is like this is what would happen if, if you know, he relates it to us in a present day. Like, this is what mm-hmm. happens. This would be the worst case scenario if, you know, um, a black man went home with, with a, a white lady and yes. met her parents. And it's fucking terrifying. And some of this is rooted in truth. And some of, uh, some of it's obviously heightened and everything. Well, of course, it has but to be. That's how we tell stories like that. Yeah. Yes. Um, but the fact that it's, it's so steeped in reference and, and then just updated and and makes a point because that's the other thing is that john carpenter almost always made a point unless it was you know some if the point was this is just a silly slasher film that's still a point yeah um but that move the point is movies can be fun guys yeah yeah (laughs) and then his others make a very a very serious point that you can either choose to get or you can just go and have fun. Yeah. Um, I choose to always dissect things like a crazy person, but that's why we have this podcast. <laughs> uh, this was your idea. <laughs> true. But no, that I do think that they are similar in that way. And I think that's I think that's probably why I, I love them so much, is because because both of them throw us back and, and show us something that's somewhat familiar mm-hmm. to us, whether we know it or not. 
Um, we've all, I, I don't care if you've even been living under a rock, you've, you, you've seen a lot of these horror tropes and you've seen a lot of these things because they, they seep into cartoons, they seep into even romantic comedies, they seep into everything else and we've seen these things. Yeah. And then they highlight them and then add on an interesting point. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I think that what's wonderful about both of them, I want to go back to this point just real quick, is that it is very simple narratives, right? Yes, yes. I know we said this is a little convoluted, but it's convoluted for Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Like, he takes very simple notions. Peel takes very simple notions, very mm-hmm. simple story structures, yeah. right? There's nothing crazy going on here. Mm-hmm. In terms of in terms of how a story is structured, right? You can learn so much from studying both of them because they're both so good at this. Yeah, and they take the same stories that we've heard for years and years and years, like decades of this. Mm-hmm. We've been telling these stories forever. Um, Halloween, uh, murderer, and people who are innocent ish. Yeah, uh, or at least we would call them innocent of any crime. Mm-hmm. The thing is just the fear we feel of the unknown and of each other. Mm-hmm. The fog is a folklore tale. The sense of, It's a sense of the father's tale. Yeah. Get out, which we haven't covered yet, but, you know, it's this paranoia of... Not paranoia, that's that's putting it the wrong way. It's um, get out is a legitimate fear of being a minority in a world ruled by the majority. Yes. And uh, us is, what if my body were not my own? Oh, man. And get out gets into that as well. But it's about, like, ownership of a body and what you... You're deciding your own life, and uh, also, and also has sense of also has sense of the father, father's bits to it as well. Yeah. So, God, I could go, I could go on and on about us. I love. They're I, all amazing, but they're all, all all also just like classic plots. Like all yeah, of these happened totally. in the fifties and sixties. These were really campy movies back then in the forties, fifties, and sixties. Like you saw this in German Expressionism. You saw yeah. this in. Um, 50s Hollywood films. You saw it in 60s Hollywood films and everything's being restructured. So they're taking really simple story structures that we're so familiar with and just well, and he kind punching of, them. In Us, just just very briefly, he kind oh, yeah, of sorry. he kind of turned the the body snatchers narrative on its head. Yes. You know, and, and I think that, that that's, and I love that it was, uh, the main character is a black woman because mm-hmm. that is such... I mean, Jesus Christ, talk about someone who doesn't have agency over their body traditionally. 100%. Holy shit. Like that, that was, it had to go that way. Yeah. It had to go yeah. that way for him to make that point. Um, and I, I love that movie. We will hopefully cover it soon. I can't wait. Um, yeah. I could talk about it forever, but this is not that episode. So <laughs> yeah. I'm going to shut up. <laughs> so yeah, no. And I think that that's, that's a really good point. And I think that's wonderful to point out when we talk about the films, but it's, yeah. it's the, I, the reason I want, we're talking so much about Peel right now. If you're wondering why we're talking so much about a different director. Because, because he's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And he highlights what's so, car- like he, I think is one of the people who really sees the John Carpenter for who he is. Yeah. And I, I think that's amazing. Like there's, um, we recently found out that MF Doom had died, right? And we mm-hmm. always called him, uh, the, the line about him is uh, your favorite MC's favorite MC. And yeah. I think Carpenter is your favorite director's favorite director. Yeah. Fucking Martin, Marty Scorsese thinks that John Carpenter is one of the best directors of all time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. he points at him and he's like, all of his movies are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Bong Joon-ho has said a lot about Carpenter as well. Yeah. Peel has. So like all of these people we love as directors. And like mm-hmm. I, Scorsese is not my favorite by any means. He makes very good movies, but I'm I'm just not like a diehard about mm-hmm. him. But fuck, I respect the shit out of his work. Yeah. And if he like it's it, that's the thing. It's like y- anybody you think is a great director. 
thinks John Carpenter's better than they are. <laughs> right. It's it's um, it's a very interesting thing, and I think that it's it's because he takes so much care with it. Like like you've said a couple times already that that he he didn't like something, so he went back and changed it. Yeah, and, and he worked hard on it. It wasn't just like oh that pickup shot had a coffee cup in it, or like you know yeah, what I mean. Let's go back to Game let's, of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. Oh Every God. Co- everybody's yeah. going so pissed about the fucking coffee cup. It's like get fucked. I don't even notice it. I don't care enough. Yeah. Um, but. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I think he does. It's because he does care so much and he he does everything with some form of purpose. Yeah. And he's not worried about coming in under budget, which I also love. Yeah. Yeah. He's <laughs> we not, talked he's about the thing about like that. that budget just went up and up and up and it's up. Like, and Ooh, up. What if we do this? What if we do that? Yeah. Um, yeah. He just doesn't give a shit about coming. Like, I think that's why studios hate him. Like, it's that he's just like, no, I'm going to make a good movie. What the fuck? What? Budgets, you have millions of dollars. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, to them, I'm <laughs> sure he comes off as very like chaotic. Yeah. Uh, which people with money don't like. Uh, because, yeah, you don't know where your money's going. But, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I can't really say enough positive things about him uh, that's pretty much all i had to bring up with this movie i don't know if you had did you have any more points yeah i, I mean again i could just go on and on and on this is going to become one of the last times we're talking about him as a director i just yeah. like what you know wanted to spend some time with him i mean we've done 15 minutes so i don't have to keep going but um yeah i just love talking about him as a director and trying to understand him as a director like that's the reason we do these months right mm-hmm. we did it with bong joon ho and i wanted to do it even more specifically with this one this is our second round mm-hmm. hell we might do a john carpenter redux month uh, in the there's future, like there's material. enough. Yeah, like yeah. we didn't. Even, we're not even going to get into the '90s with him. Yeah, this and there's is, some really interesting stuff in the '90s. This is for sure not the last of John Carpenter because this is a horror podcast. So yeah. deal with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think it's really, I think it's wonderful, and I love looking at the people he's inspired, and I love looking at being able to see because, like, we. I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but it was a uh, friend of the pod, Carrie Baines, mm-hmm. um, had asked me, "What the fuck do I mean?" or "What what the fuck do we mean?" When we say something is super Carpenter. Yeah. And that's actually why I ended up wanting to do this. Not just because I want to talk about him all the time. <laughs> right. But because it's a it's a answering a question that people have asked. And it's, you know, friends and, and fans have asked. It's like, what do you like, mean when you, you mean? say? Yeah. And that's why we want to do these director series. You know, we're not going to beat you over the head with them. We're not going to do them every month, of course. But it's fun to be able to, like, take four or five films. Yes from one director and just watch them one after the other and go, okay, so now I know what I'm saying enough to tell somebody else about it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, it's more, I think it's more fun to analyze them as, you know, a, a body of work than it is individually sometimes, you know, definitely, definitely I'm bummed that we missed out on doing uh, Karen Kusama so far. Maybe she'll do another few horror films in the next couple of years. And we'll get a, another Karen Kusama month, but we've covered a bunch of hers already. We have. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, she was somebody who I definitely wanted to put on our docket and I was like, Oh wait, we've already done all of hers. Yeah. And I want to, I, I want to very briefly just talk about just because I bring it up in every episode that the the women in this movie he treats extremely well. Oh, it's him, amazing. For, him yeah. and Deborah Hill. They every woman in this film has has extreme agency. Like they they are interacting with the story. The story is not just happening to them. They are they're very very independent. Not they are not Pollyannas like I like to call them. Like they're not they're not screaming. They're just like taking care of shit. They're, they're on the same level as the men in this movie, which is what I really appreciate. Yeah. They're not above or below. Everybody's not, just a person, just a person. And, and it's, 
it's it's chill that Jamie Lee Curtis's character just like hops in that truck and it ends up nicely for her. Like she just yeah. is like this guy's kind of cute and he's you know, he he doesn't seem too weird so so then she decides she wants to fuck him and she does yeah. and they have a goofy conversation have, about how he's like are you, she's like are you weird? And he's like yeah, I'm weird. And she's like good cuz the last guy that yeah, it's it's cute. Yeah. It's cute. So like she decides to do all of that and then they're together for the whole thing but it's not like made into a thing. Yeah, they're it's not just, dating. They're it, not there's no future yeah. for them but they're just stuck in a place together yeah. for the t- for our time. And nobody is like upset about it. It's not like one of those weird longing things and yeah, the the dudes from the from the other side of the radio are are you know thirsting after Stevie Wayne but I'm like I probably would be too. Who wouldn't be? Uh, and she deals with it really well. She's kind of like, shut the fuck up. Or, yeah. you know, it, she's just like, I'm a working lady with a son at home. Like, what do you want? Yeah. You can't stop <laughs> wasting my time. So I I love how he just like everyone's on the same level here. There's no yeah. there's no like hero. There's no, no there's nothing. It's, it's literally just normal people in a town trying to do the best they can to stay alive. Yeah. And that's it. Um, the one thing we can say, not a diverse film. Um, no, certainly not. Um, um, I, I wish it was, but yeah. That also may be on purpose. Um, Maybe. It it does feel that way a little bit because this is like a coastal California town. Yeah. Um, in Northern California where well, and if, that's if, a thing and uh, it's well known. Like there's the whole thing like um, the state of Jefferson, which is this stupid secessionist movement and racist secessionist movement in Northern California. I see. Um, and there's a lot of that sentiment up there. Well, um, and so it may just be commentary on that, that like, this is what it looks like. And that's part of the commentary, right? Like the white folks are the ones who have stolen and that's killed what I was about land. to say. Yeah. If, if that if if that narrative rings true, then it should be all white people, because that is traditionally who has taken things from marginalized and people of yeah. different races. Now, again, it's fiction, so. of course. So it's like we all, say all the yeah. time, it's fiction. You can diversify your film. Totally. But if he's making if he's making that point, then I would understand why everyone on that side would be white. Yes. Yes. So I, I kind of I understand that, like, if that point stands. So, yeah, I don't so, know. But yeah, diversify your films, please. Just yeah. In general. And everyone after this is like he yeah. this is the last of his that's like lily white. Yeah. Because um, we see I mean, we talked about it in the thing. It's it's more diverse. The um, thing is pretty. Yeah. Pretty diverse other than gender spectrum. <laughs> yeah. And again, that was intentional. We talked they about said that, that specifically. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's um, Escape from New York. Diverse. Escape from mm-hmm. LA. Diverse. Christine. I can't remember, but it's again, you're in like fucking upper Maine. Um, <laughs> right. But yeah. Um, but yeah I, so yeah, I think it's it's one of those things that like, yeah, you can always, you could call him out, but he's like, yeah, I just, he's, people have called him out. He's like, yeah, I deserve that for the ones that I did that for. Yeah. And there's a lot to be said for at least just owning up to something instead yeah. of doubling down or doing some yeah. other shitty thing. But yeah, I think I think that wraps us up. Yeah, that'll that'll do it for this one. All righty. So you guys know where to find us. We're at Horror Babes Podcast on Instagram. We're at Horror Babes Pod on Twitter. And we're always on that website life, horrorbabespod.com. Until next time, please stay safe. Wear a mask. Practice social distancing. Wash your damn hands because we want to get through this thing mm-hmm. as quickly as possible. So 
Thank you for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please go rate us. Give us a nice rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. We would really appreciate it. The review as well is also super great for us. A review is really, really nice. Metrics are things. They shouldn't be, but they are. (laughs) Correct. So again, thank you guys for listening. We'll see you all next time. Bye, Bye, babes. babes.